Praise God. Let's stand now to hear our scripture text for the sermon today. Psalm 119, verses 21 through 24. I encourage you to turn there. Psalm 119, 21 through 24. We'll be diving into this short passage today. Hear now the word of God. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Amen. O Holy Spirit of God, we ask for the illumination of the Spirit upon our hearts, that we may know this word, Father, to your glory and to your honor and to your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in our study of Psalm 119, we've seen it's this expression of truth through the convictions of a godly man who loves God's word and he sees his utter reliance upon God to walk in God's ways. We remember that God has given us and entrusted us to exceedingly great and precious promises, so we are driven by faith to seek the Lord for his mercy, that we may walk in his ways, because this is life to us. This is life eternal to us. So we've talked about how the moral law, although it condemns the sinner, it awakens us to sin and drives us to Christ for life. And so, as Christians... We love the law of God because it keeps pushing us back to Christ. And so we concluded in our study that the pursuit of a holy life requires living on God's word by a complete dependency upon him alone, and it propels our faith into action to know him more and to do his good works. And we saw that this involves taking heed according to God's word, and that results in declaring God's truth with our mouths and our lives, which brings a true rejoicing over God's ways, but it requires faith, meditation, and a continual remembrance of God's precepts. So that is our joy. It's found resolutely in God's faith, so that in God's truth, so that the Christian, by faith, can rejoice in God's ways. And so now we come to where we are this morning in verse 21. And we're going to see that our psalmist considers now really a new dimension of following God's law that he has never considered yet so far in this psalm. And that is, what is the external effect when a Christian keeps God's law? What happens from the outside? And we're going to see that there is assault that comes against those who walk in the ways of God. And so to begin this morning, let's back up and just let's walk through the considerations that the psalmist has had regarding the word of God. Well, he first declares that walking in the way of the Lord is the life of what? Do you remember? It's repeated at the very beginning of the psalm. It's the life of blessedness. Blessed are those who walk in the way of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his commandments. Holy and righteous, they are the blessed ones. 
who treasure God's commandments. They love the law of their God, and they see it. They see it rightly. They see the perfection of it. They see the purity of it. And they know walking in it is the only true way to be blessed in this life. And so they seek this law, this word of God, with their whole hearts, striving to keep the commandments of their God diligently. And so we see that there's this hope-driven confidence, not in self, but in God. The Christian sees more clearly that he is not perfect, and in fact he's quite broken and powerless to do any righteousness without the righteousness of his Redeemer. Yet the Christian is propelled forward in faith to trust in his God. A faith that is striving to be real and earnest and active, distrustful of self, unspotted from the world, self-renouncing, confident in God, delighting in thankfulness, and decidedly determined to keep God's law and ready to confess that without divine grace, the Christian can do nothing. And so the Christian wants to know. He wants to know God's ways more more closely, more intimately. So there's a a passionate petitioning of God. Not just reading God's word casually, not even just memorizing God's word, but living it out, taking heed according to it. And so the psalmist brings a second consideration, a petition to know God and his law more, which are, These precepts, God's statutes, God's commandments, if I hide them in my heart so that I might not sin against you, O God. And then the psalmist moves to his third consideration, which is an utter dependency upon God to do anything good at all. Because he knows the temptation to to stray off the path. And so in this petition, the Christian cries out that he may know God more. You might remember what he says, Open my eyes that I might see the wondrous things of your law. There is a reliance on the Holy Spirit to rightly understand God's truth. As we talked about, the illumination of the Holy Spirit to remove the darkness from our hearts that we may see more clearly the word of God and understand it. Knowing that any understanding to perceive and even apply the word of God comes from a work of the Holy Spirit and so we must live in continual communion with God. And so with that we now move today to verse 21. This fourth consideration about what happens, what it means when you walk in the ways of the Lord. Let's look again at our text in verse 21 and 22. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. So really, for the first time in this psalm, a contrast is set forth between the wicked and the righteous. These are the two sides. We have the proud who stray from God's commandments, who rebel against God's law. And on the other side, we have the righteous who delight in God's testimonies. These are presented to us as complete opposites. And in verse 21, speaking of God, you rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. The proud, it's it's the insolent, it's the arrogant, those boastfully audacious, those who stand against God's law keepers 
And note that these proud are cursed, it says. They wander away and have no remorse, no conviction, but they may have worldly sorrow, but no godly sorrow. You might, you might remember 2 Corinthians 7 tells us godly sorrow, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so indeed they are spiritually dead because worldly sorrow or a sadness over just the consequences of your sin is indicative of one who has no godly fear, no grounding, and is rather proud. So the psalmist is talking now about the likes of Cain and Pharaoh and Haman and Nebuchadnezzar and Herod. These all exhibited pride and received the rebuke and curse of God. And God abhors their offerings to him. God resists them. Jesus said he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Pride. We've all, we've all known pride. But pride is a death sentence to man. Pride makes a man wander around without a care with anything but for himself. Dominant pride will deceive and ruin anyone. Pride blinds us to our sin, our weaknesses, and our shortcomings. It's like having blinders all on. You think you're wonderful, but you're not seeing rightly. With no humility, you're in the dark to your failings and how you may be hurting others. When we're proud, we will inevitably offend others around us. Because pride intoxicates us. It's like the inebriated one who's so confident in his illusion state, he becomes foolish and risky and uncalculated, showy, boisterous, and yet he's so uninspiring and wasteful. And this is what we are in a state of pride. Pride leads us to wander or stray, as the text says, from God's commandments. Because we think we know better. We actually think we know better than God. It's a sad state. It's a dangerous state for man. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, we must very much be active in killing pride. We must turn from it. It is a hard evil. And perhaps, perhaps one of the most deadly things about pride is that it opens the door to even more sin because we justify it. Because we're confident that in our pride, we are right and God is wrong. As Christians, we must abhor pride. We must dread the rebuke of God and his curse. Proud sinners. Proud Sinners are the complete opposite of the humble, God-fearing Christian. Yet pride is the continual state of the wicked. Proud and presumptuous, they defy heaven, they laugh at sacred things, they ignore the last days, and they are cursed by God. And in their pride, the wicked stand completely against God. They rebuke God, scorn God. The gospel's foolishness to them. The, the message of the cross is an offense to them. And so, not only do they hate God, but anyone who keeps God's law. Now, we've studied this in Psalm 37. It's what I'm going through in our time of exhortation. So we're familiar with this. Listen to the words of Psalm 37. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. The wicked watches the righteous, seeking to slay him. 
These proud, insolent ones are against the righteous. The righteous receive their reproach, their scorn, their contempt, their ridicule. So the psalmist is faced with the reality, so he immediately, as we've seen before, he runs to God and petitions God in verse 22. Take a look. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Reproach by the wicked will come, because the Christian keeps God's commandments and lives them out. So it's no strange thing that those who keep God's testimony should be slandered or reproached. This is what we will face if we walk according to the law of our Lord. And I want to give you some considerations now of that reproach that comes. Firstly, we know that our Lord himself endured reproach, didn't he? Right, children? Did did Jesus endure reproach from men? Yes. Yes. And... He said, as we read, as Pastor Shriso read, it would happen to us too. Because we're called to be just like Jesus in every way. Our Lord Jesus was certainly hated for his obedience to the Father. You remember, he was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But of course, we know he was continually under threat during his ministry, wasn't he? But what about, do you remember that Jesus was even hated as an infant? His whole life, he was hated. You remember how many infants, little, little babies, have death sentences placed upon them? You remember the word. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the wise men. Jesus knew reproach every day of his life on earth. Yet this reproach was not just for Christ, but for his followers. You remember in John 15... If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. They persecuted me. They will also persecute you. And this is is very important for us, brothers and sisters, to understand and to live by. We were chosen out of the world. We are set apart. We are redeemed and given life that we might see that we might spiritually discern. And so being alive, that we would know God's word is truth and that we would treasure it and walk in it. And therefore, the world will hate us. Just as the psalmist expresses, remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Jesus knew reproach and so will we as his disciples. Secondly, the word of God instructs us that we should expect this kind of scorn from the wicked. Remember 1 Peter 4? Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, although as some strange thing were happening, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. The reproach of the Christian receives for keeping the testimonies of God is a partaking. Like a a getting, an accepting, a receiving of the sufferings of Christ. 
in our union with Christ. So this is not strange. This is our calling. This is our part of our conformity unto the image of Christ, sharing in his sufferings that we may know him more. And I want to share with you one of the most encouraging examples that we see here of this in the early church. Paul and Barnabas' ministry in Lystra was amazing. Listen to their response of faith. I'm just going to read this portion of Acts 14 now. Imagine yourself there, perhaps. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Whoa. But when the disciples gathered about him to see his dead body, he rose up. And what did he do then? He walked back into the city. What? And the next day they went on to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, they returned to Lystra, where he was stoned, remember, and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, I think so. Paul was saying, guys, this is the life for us. This is normative. It was our, the life of our Lord, and it's our life today. Reproach and contempt will come to those who keep God's testimonies. Thirdly, reproach will come to those who keep God's law because we are not of this world. In fact, we're called, what? Strangers, aliens, sojourners. Because here we have no lasting city, do we? But we seek the city that is to come. So let us not deny the fact that we will receive rebuke as strangers. We're, we're travelers to a distant home where, where our treasure is, where our inheritance is kept up in Christ, where our citizenship is not here but in heaven. And so, being that chosen race, that royal priesthood, that holy nation set apart by God, we are different. We are indeed strangers. And we stand out. We look different. We sound different. We live differently. We talk differently. Because as strangers in this world, we have this more sure word, the word of God, that we follow. And we delight in this word. Fourthly, we've seen reproach from the wicked come throughout the entire history of the church. It didn't take long, did it, before one of the deacons in the church was stoned to death. Right? And, and, and the, it's just endless, the list of martyrs. Not even just martyrs, but those who have suffered reproach and scorn. Stephen, we've talked about, every apostle. Every disciple, Polycarp, Vitus, Perpetua, Huss, Tyndale, Wycliffe, Calvin, Luther, we could just go on all the rest of the day and talk about thousands and thousands and thousands who've been persecuted for what? Walking in the ways of their God. What about today? Persecution still happening? Absolutely. The reproach, the martyrdom goes on upon missionaries, upon everyday Christians living their lives in Afghanistan, North Korea, Iran, and right here. Because right here in Elbert County, if you stand for the word of God, 
reproach and scorn will come to your door. It's inevitable. It's inevitable for keepers of God's law. But in verse 23, the psalmist tells us that the scorn is not just limited, but it's expansive. Take a look. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. It's not just the rough and tumble, lewd and crude, wicked that bring reproach. It's even the highest in the land, the princes. Those that are supposed to maintain some semblance of order in the land. They're they're entrusted with, 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 with power. But even they too are against the righteous. And we see this in our day, don't we, right now. This is just a short list. But we see tyranny against Christians, specifically against Christians. We see deliberate measures to restrict and thwart the work of the righteous. We see the systematic destructions of God's institutions like marriage. We see a continual dividing up of the family and the institutionalization of children. We see a push towards independent living and one-sided tolerance, I'll call it. And this, as, as Brother Suiso mentioned, this Respect for Marriage Act, this is, you know what this is? It's just the latest act outworking of Psalm 2 right before your eyes. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. That's exactly what you see in this act that was passed. It's foolishness. They're not allowed to use the word marriage like that, frankly. The reproach and scorn that flow from the princes of the land, while it targets God's people, that's how we feel it, it's ultimately against who? It's against God. That is the response. But the response of the righteous is so beautiful, if you look at it in verse 23, because it just shouts of his resolute trust in God. Princes sit against me, but... Your servant meditates on your statutes. That's what he's saying. Let them be against me. I will meditate on your statutes. The highest in the land are against him, but the righteous, he is unflinching. He is confident. He is focused all the more on his God with a declaration of what? He just has to say it. I am your servant. You see what he's saying? I'm not that prince's servant. I'm your servant, O God fixing our eyes upon Jesus, looking straight ahead, very aware of the reproach that will come, but he's not surprised by it. He's focused on the upward call of Christ Jesus, our Lord. As Calvin said this about this passage, to adhere unflinchingly to our purpose. When the world takes us up in an unjust opinion of us, at the same time, constantly we are called to meditate on God's law. This is the example of Christian fortitude that we must set forth. The psalmist says, Lord, I will meditate on your statutes. I will walk with you. Although everyone is against me, I am holding fast to your word. And that's the word for us. Someone rebukes you, reproaches you, scorns you. That's that's the word for us, brothers and sisters but I will meditate on your statutes. And we recall that this meditation in God's statutes, it builds within us a confident hope, doesn't it? 
that, that we have the sword of the Spirit. Nothing can come against this almighty word. And if we feed upon the word, we grow strong and peaceful in God. That we, cause we, Because we know by God's grace we are defended from the reproach of the evildoer. Oh God, your works are what we delight in. You've given us the weapons of word and prayer. We may be well trained and and constantly exercised in these gifts. And of course, this compels the psalmist to declare the burden of his heart in verse 24. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Because we delight in the testimonies of the work of our God. The abundant richness of the gospel that breathes forth life into the land, into the world. Jesus said it, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. The world, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The truth of our God is truly our delight, and it's just what we need. Not the wisdom of man, not a new revelation, not some new Christian slogan, but the holy word of God. This is the light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path that shows us forth the way in the dark. God's word is such a delight. And again, you can make your own list. I made mine. How comprehensive it is to me. This, is a good, this would be a good exercise. What, what is the word of God for you? It turns me from sin and invites me to the Savior. It directs me to wait upon him. It reveals to me the real condition of my heart. It instructs me in the all-sufficiency of Christ. It cautions me in the dangers of hypocrisy. I need the word to bring me back on track from my self-pity when life doesn't go my way. The word of God builds in me an increased watchfulness. The word of God strengthens my confidence in the fullness of of his grace And the word of God reminds me of the faithfulness of his love. See, in a culture where truth is constantly distorted, God has given us this sure counselor. This sure counselor. Praise God for his holy word. Amen. What an important dimension we've seen here in this passage today of walking in the ways of God. That external effect that comes from keeping God's law. The reproach will come. And so for the rest of the message today, I I want to apply this to our lives. How shall we, who treasure God's commandments, how shall we engage this reproach? What should we do with it? How should we respond to it? Well, we're told a few things. We're told that we are to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We just heard about that. We are admonished to be watchful, to be sober, to be courageous. We are exhorted to stand in the face of reproach. And we exalt the righteousness of God. But practically, I really want to get practical. And what does that look like in your life? How do we respond to the reproach of the wicked? What shall we do when scorn is placed upon us? How shall we live in the face of this continual plotting against the Christian by the princes of the land? 
So three applications I want to conclude with today. Number one, we must keep pressing on with faithful confidence. We must keep pressing on with faithful confidence. Notice in verses 23 and 24 that despite the scorn of the proud, the faithful just keep leaning into their God. They receive the reproach, but what? But your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies are also my delight and my counselors. Brothers and sisters, we just keep pressing on. We're not derailed like a train off of its tracks. The enemy throws a log on the tracks. We just run right over it. Remember Daniel? Children, you remember Daniel? Daniel in the lion's den? What happened before that? King Darius signed the decree that no man can petition God. No man can pray to God. And what does Daniel do? Unwaveringly, unthwarted by the reproach, with full confidence in God, as soon as he heard the writing was signed, what did he do? He went home, opened those windows, got on his knees, and prayed to God. Why? He wasn't afraid. He feared God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them a few chapters earlier. They're told to bow before the king's golden image, but they cannot bow because they know who their God is. And so they keep pressing on to the truth to know what is right. And I love what they said. This is what they said. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. What a statement. What a bold statement. They're focused, unhindered by the threats and reproach. We must keep pressing on. May this this be the essence of our faith, to live our convictions, not just to debate and talk about them. We love to debate and talk about things, but we have to live it out. We have to take action. We have to actually have to do something one day. We can't be tossed about, thrown off course by the feeble attempts of the scorners to derail us. We keep pressing on with faithful confidences. The princes in Denver sit against you. Do you know that? They do. Trust me. You can read about it. Waste of time. But they sit against you. So what do we do? Well, there it is in our text. As your servants, O God, we meditate on your statutes. How about the early church? The apostles and disciples. I I love it. I love it. They were beaten and thrown out of cities, but they, again, dusted themselves off and walked right back in. (laughs) Not concerned about the rebuke. Not concerned about the threat. For their hope is in the gospel. Which, because they knew it was the only hope to bring those dead men to life. Listen in Acts 4. So they, the synagogue rulers, called them the apostles and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. This is the call to press on. It's it's that hopeful declaration of Paul. 
and to Philippi. I do not count myself to apprehend of it, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to that which is ahead, I press forward to the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus my Lord. We press on in faithful confidence. We will be called to press on in different forms. Each one of us will probably experience a little different thing. Right? If you disciple your children in the word of God, the scorn of the world is going to come to you. It will. And to your children. Don't be surprised. Don't be derailed. But just press on in faith. Do it tomorrow too. Teach them again. Because we're not called to fear and run away from the reproach. We are called to what? Engage it. To fight the good fight of faith. To lay hold of eternal life. Putting on the full armor of God. As we sang about, lead on, O King Eternal. Lead on. We're striving in our calling for Christ. Seeking a closer, deeper relationship with him. Growing in faith. Not looking backwards, but fixing our eyes on his victory in front of us. Secondly, second application. We do not respond in fear to the reproach but in faith. Note here in Psalm 119, this is really shocking if you think about it. It's very different from our day. The psalmist doesn't dwell on the wicked. And brothers and sisters, I think we do this a little too much in our day. We can really go on and on and talk about how wicked the wicked are. We spend more time talking about the abominations of the land than we do talking about how great our God is. We spend our time and our energy chasing down the inconveniences to our life of personal peace and affluence than we, than we do talking about the goodness of our God. But our call is not to be entangled with the affairs of this life, but to look to our captain and engage the spiritual battle that is before us. The battle for the gospel not the battle for some idyllic, peaceful life that our culture is dreaming you in. That's not our life. Look at the text in verses 21 through 24. God, you will rebuke the proud. He's confident in it. So he doesn't dwell on how can I retaliate against this wicked? How can I, what's my retribution? How can I have vengeance? No, vengeance belongs to the Lord. There's just no fear. He just turns from it and turns right to God. And know how he prepares. He firstly turns to the word, right? He says, I will keep your testimonies. I will meditate on your statutes. Because there's a preparation by faith, right? The horse is prepared for the day of battle. And hear me, we must take steps to prepare the horse for the day of battle. But deliverance is from the Lord which means we do all things by faith. Every bit of preparation you do in this life for the battle, you do by faith, knowing deliverance is of the Lord. When you walk in God's ways and pushback comes, there's not a fear, but there's a looking forward. There's a looking straight ahead, like the courage of David, that, that we, can de- we should declare God's might Do you ever do that? I think, just for me, I need to speak it out loud more. Listen to the words of David. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. 
We should speak this way in our lives. David said to the Philistine, You came to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give you the give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that they may know there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. There's something about us today we're a little timid to even speak this way. Brothers and sisters, our God is on our side. He has won us. We are bought by his blood, and he will be victorious. So there's no fear. There is faith, there's trust, there's hope, there's confidence in our God. And so we should ask ourselves, do we have this confidence? Do we believe in the gospel this way? Do we know who we are in Christ? Do we walk daily hope-filled that we are the redeemed? When you read Psalm 91, do you believe that is true? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. There it is, abide. Well, may, may we be those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High. Pastor, Presbyterian Pastor William Plummer said this, speaking of that reproach that comes. He said, let us not forget that God can wholly shield us from the shafts of malice. He can bring us to a great good out of so severe a trial that if through his grace we can be steadfast with God, we may be sure that all will end well and that if our fellowship be with the Father and with his Son, and the Spirit, all wrath, the wrath of man, can do us no real harm. Thirdly, the third application I want to bring when faced with reproach is that we are called to stand. To stand. We stand for the truth and we stand on God's words. Our psalmist relays today, if you keep God's law, The persecution is going to come. Rebuke is going to come. Remember, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But we are called to stand. Stand fast in the battle. I want to read the very familiar words of Ephesians chapter 6, but I want you to listen for the word stand. Listen as I read this. Listen for that word. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, put and put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's a repeated call to do one thing. Stand. And note in our text today, in verse 23, the princes sit. And plot against me, but the Christian stands and meditates on God's statutes. But practically, what does this look like? What does it mean to stand? It's talking about spiritually standing. So what does it mean today? Well, first, we must remember that the spiritual battle is continually going on. And about the reality of our enemy, right? Can you sleep, go lay down and take a nap in the middle of the battlefield? 
No, we can't let our souls go adrift to fascinations and passions and allurements of the world. Or we'll be walking into the middle of the battlefield in our pajamas. We can't do it. We have to be awake. We have to be ready. There's not this time when we get to just take off all of our spiritual armor and just throw it over there. No. There's there's no time for that. What, What did Peter say to us about this? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, or the word originally, stand in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We're not alone, right? This is the reality of all who keep God's word. So we must discern, we must see with spiritual eyes of how to stand in the faith. Secondly, secondly, standing, as you all know, takes what? Takes intentionality. And we should be intentional in our Christian walk if we're called to stand. Just think about the physical act of standing up. If you were to stand up right now, you don't just stand up randomly. You stand up with a purpose, for a reason. You're going to go do something. And so we must act and live as Christians with a deliberate intentionality of our Christian lives. Stand for truth in the face of reproach. And thirdly, you know that standing can be a sign of honor, right? right? In a wedding, when the bride comes down the aisle, everyone does what? Stands up. Maybe when someone very important walks into the room, what happens? Everyone stands up. We as Christians stand for the honor of our God. And we're always standing. We're always standing. We do not lie down. We cannot take a spiritual nap. We stand upon and for the statutes of our God, for his kingdom, his glory, his triumph, and his victory over sin. Fourthly, note that standing is a position of readiness. Right? Never seen uh, you engage in a sword fight laying down. You stand up. Right? You're ready to fight, ready to engage. As 1 Corinthians 16 says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. You can't do that sitting down. And and some of the ladies in the church here took a little self-defensive class, right? And they were taught a position to stand in so that if an attacker came, you wouldn't just be toppled over easily. And that's what we need to be. Are Are you ready? Try to knock me down. I'm ready. That's our position. We're standing. Are we that way spiritually? Or are you easily toppled over? Stumbling because our priorities are mixed up or because we're distracted by our sin. We stand firm in the faith, aware of our surroundings, petitioning our God that we would know him more. And fifthly, lastly, about standing, we stand together. The church is a blessing, and one reason God has given us one another is so that we can stand together. You are not standing alone, Christian. The best way I can illustrate this is a story from my own life 22 years ago. I was with our fighter squadron on a brief mission in Las Vegas. 
And the 40 men of the squadron came up with this idea to go and visit a wicked business that no man should ever go to. And the peer pressure was so strong to go along with the crowd, and I wondered, what should I do? There seems to almost be no other option. This is what the commander was doing. This is what the entire group was doing. And in that community, in the military, loyalty is so important. It's a life and death thing. Loyalty to the team meant speaking against it would be unthinkable. But then, a Christian spoke up and said, I'm not going there. And, and, and boos and jeers came from the other men. Insulting names were thrown out about the man. But the man stood his ground and said, I'm not going there, I love my wife. And he said, I'm going to Taco Bell. And anyone is welcome to join me. And I was praising God for that way of escape and the faith of that brother. And so despite the irreparable damage that caused to our careers the next two years, that night, 37 men went to a house of debauchery, but three of us went to Taco Bell and had a great time. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The point is, brothers and sisters, it just takes one to speak up, to open a door, to step out in faith against the reproach, to show one another together the path of righteousness that we stand together for Christ. So speak up, stand up, don't be the silent Adam as the devil sweet talks another saint to sin, but take a stand, having done all To stand. Stand, therefore. We must stand for righteousness. This is our calling. So are we ready? Are we prepared to engage the battle for the opportunity that God drops in your lap to sanctify the Lord and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear? Do you stand for God in your neighborhood? Do you stand for God at your workplace, in your business, in your home, through your example, and your disciplines of personal holiness? Are you open to the feedback of a brother? These are all aspects of standing. Because we are not alone. Remember, we're surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses. We stand for the truth. We stand on God's promises. And we stand in his strength alone. And one final point about standing. We must stand by the power of God. By the resurrecting strength of Christ. Remember Jesus said there at the end of what we read in John, when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, he will testify of me. It's in that testimony, like the psalmist, where we are able to stand. That's why the psalmist said, I will testify of you. By the grace of our God that through faith we live. We're going to close with a hymn of response, and I want to highlight to you now the third verse. It says this, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, stand in his strength alone, the arm of flesh will fail you. Dare not trust in your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, 
will never be wanting there. Brothers and sisters, we have this glorious treasure to stand in his strength. If you keep God's law, if you walk in his ways, the reproach and scorn is going to come. But by the saving work of Christ, we are called to stand in his strength alone and be witnesses of his power, witnesses of his mercy, his justice, and his grace. Praise be to God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this call today to stand by your grace, to stand in your strength alone. Oh, God, help us to be like this psalmist who has received the reproach and scorn, but knows the response, not to dwell on the wicked, but to turn to our God. Oh, Lord, may we do this today, and may we apply this, that you would receive all the glory In Jesus' name, amen.